It's really good to see all of you here this morning on this uh, Decision Sunday. Uh, we are in the book of First Peter, as you well know, chapter 3, and I want to invite you to turn to verse 18. On this Patriot Day, I think I can speak for most of us as Americans uh, this morning, we cherish our country and our right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We are indebted to those who in past generations have given the ultimate gift of life to protect those rights and our inherent freedoms here. Now, the United States is not a perfect place, but then no government or no nation ever is. And despite our shortcomings and problems in this country, I never tire or I never have a problem with reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. Do you know our pledge's history? The original American Pledge of Allegiance was composed by Civil War veteran Colonel George Balk in 1887, and it reads like this. We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, one flag. Now, five years later, it was revised by Francis Bellamy and then tweaked a couple times through the years, but it was never formally adopted until Congress adopted it in 1942. At that same time, Congress also made the official salute to the pledge of our flag and republic as the hand over the heart. And the title, the Pledge of Allegiance, was finally adopted in 1945. The very last change to the Pledge of Allegiance came in 1954. It is my favorite part of the Pledge of Allegiance, and that is when President Eisenhower signed the legislation into uh, being a... Uh, a reality, and that's when the two words, under God, were added to the Pledge of Allegiance uh, of our country and to our flag. Now, as an American citizen, I know how to pledge my allegiance to this grand republic. But as a citizen of heaven, what do I do to pledge my allegiance or my commitment to Jesus Christ? Is there a deed? Is there an act? Is there some kind of moment of commitment to Jesus Christ? There is, and it's a beautiful act. It's a powerful moment. It is a grand expression of our complete trust and our surrender to Jesus Christ. Our pledge of allegiance is found in what Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Here's, here's what we read. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge... The pledge of a good conscience. The pledge of allegiance toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This beautiful act of baptism in one perspective is our pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, as you've already heard mentioned, today is our fall decision day. <clears throat> And I'm going to encourage you to make one of three decisions this morning. First one is the most important. 
If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been deliberating with this and, and been putting it off, I don't want you to put it off any longer. Today is the day to, to acknowledge him as the Lord and Savior. Today is the day to be buried with him in the act of baptism. That is the first and foremost ultimate important decision. Second decision is, if you're already an immersed believer, you're a Christian, you've been serving, you've been working, and, and you just haven't decided whether or not you want to make this your church home, we would encourage you to do that. Say, all right, today I'm, not, I'm no longer just going to be a person who attends here. I'm going to become a part of who this family is. I'm going to become a family member. I'm going to become a partner with this church in the work that they do. The third decision is for some of you who've been members for a long time and you've gotten a little bit, well, settled where you are. Come on Sunday morning, you go home from the service, you really aren't involved, you really aren't serving or volunteering. You've become a pew potato, okay? And so we've got some commitment cards over on this side. If you would like to say, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop being a lazy Christian. I'm gonna commit myself to some area of volunteerism. We got cards over here, we want you to sign one of those because I believe when you sign your name to something, it's, it, there's an accountability that goes with that, and it, it'll make a, a great difference. And so those are the decisions that we're going to call forth here in just a little bit. But our spiritual journey actually begins with a more basic decision than any of that. And this decision has everything to do with Peter's declaration that Christ died for sins once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous is to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive by God's Spirit. Now, here's the first question you have to answer. None of the rest of the decisions matter until you make this choice. Do you believe that statement? Do you believe that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day arose? I mean, I wish time would allow me the, the opportunity to tell you why I believe that's true, why I believe in the cross and the empty tomb. We've done that in the past. We'll do it more in the future. But, but today, I can't do that. But if today you have settled in your own mind the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you say, I do believe that, then the other decisions become paramount. You see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most pivotal moment of history. And the question then arises, how do I pledge my allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ in light of what he did for me? Is there a way that I can engage that moment of history when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again? The simple answer is this. Yes, the act of baptism accomplishes all of that. Let me begin this morning with the very first instance of Christian baptism we find in Scripture. It also involved Peter, the writer of this letter, only 30 years earlier, because he's the very first one to preach a message about the gospel, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, at the conclusion of his incredibly powerful sermon, this is what we read as the response. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's the day the church began. And it began with 3,000 people being baptized. And throughout the book of Acts, from beginning to end, this 
This moment, this pledge of allegiance occurred whenever somebody accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sometimes there were thousands that were present at the moment. Sometimes there were just two, like Philip and the Ethiopian on his way back home. So in this beautiful act of baptism, I want you to see some things that are really important. It was viewed and practiced with the highest priority in the ancient church, and I believe it still should be today in the 21st century church. First thing I want you to see is baptism is beautifully symbolic. If you do not know what it means, it's a strange thing to watch. You ever thought about that? But if you know it's symbolism, it, it, it's not strange at all. It, it takes on this massive meaning. Um, the original ancient words for baptize mean to dip, plunge, or immerse. And that symbolism, that symbolism is critical to understanding the beauty of this act. Romans chapter 6 says that we are baptized into his death. We are therefore buried with Christ through baptism. And that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too walk in a newness of life. Now you can see this when a person goes into the baptistry. They go in looking like life. They end up under the water looking like a corpse that has been buried. And then they are raised back up out of the water and life regenerates their activity. A death, a burial, and a resurrection. When we acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, something also dynamic happens inside of us. Now that's the outward picture there. We are uniting with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. But the other thing that happens, you probably don't feel. I didn't feel it when I was baptized, but it happens nonetheless. And it's monumental. When you are baptized, something else in you dies. The old life apart from Christ. We die to the power of sin. And what happens when, when somebody dies? This is not hard. <laughs> what do we do when somebody dies? We bury them, exactly. And so when, when the old person inside of you dies, you bury them. In this act of baptism, there's the symbolism of your own death and your own new beginning of life. Now, what does it mean to die to sin? It means that doing the right thing, the godly thing, becomes our priority. It means that we strive to avoid the people, places, and things that, that tempt us most. It means that we change directions. We now walk toward the light, not toward the darkness. It means that sin no longer has power or dominance in our lives. It means that the grace of God does. Now, when I was in school, the thought of being called to the principal's office was a rather daunting thought. Nobody wanted to be called to the principal's office. The, our principal was a really great person. Uh, you know, I, I really thought he was a great man. But you didn't want to be called to his office because that suggested something else might happen. I was told that he had a big paddle in the drawer of his desk that he kept there. Never saw it. I only can tell you what I was told about the paddle that was in the desk of the principal's office. But when the principal was standing outside the door in the hallway, you walked a little slower. You, you, you really minded your business. Uh, and, and, and whenever he was present, you knew that no matter what, he had the ultimate authority over what was going on in your life while you were at school. Do you remember the first time you ever ran into your high school principal after you graduated from high school? Did you first meet him and go, oh, there's the principal? And then you relaxed and realized, hey, I'm a graduate. He signed my diploma. He no longer has dominion or authority over me. 
He's an ordinary person now. That's the picture we have. When, when we die to sin, sin no longer has power or a dominion or authority over who we are. And, and God says, you put to death the old person inside of you, and I will give you new life. And that beautiful symbolic moment happens in the act of baptism. Here's something else. Baptism is incredibly significant. It is significant in that it happens once in our spiritual journey. It is not a regular occurrence like the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning or giving our offering or studying from God's word or praying to God or serving in the name of Christ throughout the week. It is not an ending point. It is a beginning point. You marry but once and then you celebrate your anniversary as you look back to that moment in time. It's a one-time moment. It's significant as the beginning of the journey. It is significant in that it is our response to his grace. We are saved by the grace of God. It is a gift. He did not owe us this gift. We did not earn this gift. We have not merited and cannot merit this gift. Furthermore, we did not initiate the process. God initiated the process of salvation. The only thing we initiated was our choice of sin, which then God said, I will do something as a remedy for that. So since God is the initiator of the plan, and since our sin is an offense to him, and since God has freely given us this gift that we don't deserve, God, as the giver and initiator of the gift, gets the right to tell us how we can receive the gift. When Peter's audience asked, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. It was God's prescribed way to receive the gift. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that my great uncle had a 1940 Packard. It looked like this picture that you see here. Now, let's just suppose for a minute that somebody out of the goodness of his heart also has a 1940 Packard, and he includes me in his will, knowing how much, you know, I, I think of that, of that great car. And so I get a call one day. I don't deserve this. I haven't certainly merited it. It's just by the goodness of the person who included me in the will. I get a call from the attorney that says, if you'll be at my office on October the 2nd at 2 o'clock, I will sign the title to the Packard over to you, and you can drive it home. Now, where do you think I'm going to be on October the 2nd at 2 o'clock? I'm going to be, actually, I'm going to be there on October the 1st. I'm just going to camp out to make sure I don't miss the time or the attorney, okay? So I'm going to be there at the appointed time, and, and I'm going to sign the paperwork. He's going to sign the title over to me. I'm going to go take the keys, drive the Packard home, but in no way can I pat myself on the back and say, didn't I do a good job of earning this? I, I, I did nothing of the sort. I just followed the instructions on how to receive a free gift, a gift, a gift that was not initiated by me, a gift that was initiated by the owner of that beautiful car. Now, here, I want you to see the point. When we follow God's instructions for a free gift, we do not merit it. We do not earn it. We don't deserve it. We're just saying, okay, God, if this is how you want me to respond to you, this is the way I will do it. By the way, do you know what the slogan for the Packard Motor Company was from the beginning to the time it went out of production? It was always this, ask the man who owns one. In other words, you, you want to know what a Packard's like? Ask the person who owns one. You want to know what impact baptism makes on a person's life? Ask somebody who's been baptized into Christ, and they will tell you what a monumental moment it was in their life. 
By the way, if you know somebody who has a 1940 Packard and has no air, <laughs> Ellsworth is spelt with two L's, all right? <laughs> Baptism is significant in that it is a cleansing. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God made possible the cleansing of sin. We are washed clean by his blood. But remember, it is in the act of baptism that we are united with his death, burial, and resurrection. So it becomes this picture of cleansing. And God is the only one that can do the cleansing. I cannot wash away my own sin. You can't either. And the act of baptism reflects the fact that only God can wash away our sin. Sam Houston was an interesting character, uh, first president of the Republic of Texas, and then the first governor of the state of Texas once it became one of our states. He had uh, a, a really uh, vicious reputation. He had a, a fierce temper. He was a womanizer. He was an excessive drinker. I mean, really, Sam Houston, for all the fact that he was a great hero, was also a great mess. His third marriage to a woman who was a Christian led him to his own conversion to Jesus Christ. And when Sam Houston was baptized, someone said, now, General, all your sins have been washed away, to which Houston replied, if that be so, God help the fish below. Now, while we know that the sin does not pass into the water, Houston did understand something profound. He was a great sinner, but all of his sins had been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Baptism is significant in that it is a cleansing. And then baptism is also willful submission. Baptism is a very personal decision, folks. You ask, can a physical act have any spiritual impact? Well, I certainly hope so. The death of Christ was physical. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was, was a physical act. This isn't some wistful longing or some dream. It was a physical death. It was a physical burial. His body was resurrected from the grave. And it is that act that washes away my sin and gives me hope of everlasting life. I hope that a physical act can have a spiritual impact. When we take communion on Sunday morning, it is a, a piece of bread and it is a small cup of juice. It is physical items that I taste and consume like you, but it becomes a spiritual moment of worship. You see, I hope that a physical act can have a spiritual impact. Baptism is a physical act. It's not a meritorious work or a deed, but it is a physical act, but it has a huge spiritual impact. Here's the thing we often miss about baptism. It is completely passive. It is done to you. You can only submit to it. By the way, crucifixion was like that too. You couldn't crucify yourself. You could not drive the own, your own nails into your own hands. Crucifixion was something that was done to you. The Bible says that Jesus submitted to death, even death on a cross. All you can do with crucifixion is submit to it. All you can do to, in the act of baptism is submit to it. It is the most passive thing you do. You are active in your faith. You are active in your repentance. You are active in your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. But baptism, you cannot baptize yourself. It is something only God can do for you. You submit. You turn over the control. And then, and then Paul says we are united with him. And that, and that word united means growing together like a branch that is grafted into another tree. 
Now, it is not to suggest that salvation is found in the act of or the water of baptism. It's not as if the deed itself is enough. Uh, It's not as if there is extra potency in the water that scrubs the soul. We don't believe if they're baptized, they'll be sanitized. We do not believe get them wet and they're all set. You see, a baptism that is devoid of faith, devoid of repentance, devoid of our confession of Christ as Lord isn't a baptism at all. It is just a service where you get wet. Baptism only makes sense when you believe, when you've changed the direction of your life, and when you have declared the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that makes possible the forgiveness of our sins. However, it is the one-time act of baptism where we identify, remember, with that very event. In the history book of the church, the book of Acts, baptism always followed immediately on the heels of a person's profession of faith to Jesus Christ. Always. But I believe our biggest struggle is not with the, with the how or some of these other questions. I, I really think that the biggest question that we have is this issue of submission. If you're like me, you really want to stay in control of everything that happens in your life. On a handful of occasions, I've had surgery. Every time I have laid down on that surgical table, that operating table, there were two things were required. Number one, a competent surgeon. Number two, my submission. And there, there is that split second when the anesthetic gets you to the edge of oblivion. And right before you black out, there is this gripping feeling to me I am no longer in control. The thing about surgery is, though, that it's often life-saving. Maybe not at the moment, but some way down the road, what surgery you have here may save your life down the road. And some of it is immediately life-saving. Sometimes you have to let go of your control to save your life, which is what baptism is all about. It is God saying, I want you to let, let go of your control. Let me have control of your life so that I can bring life where death has been reigning. So the question is simply this. Should I be baptized into Christ? And the simple answer is yes, by all means. And it should be done with enthusiasm and excitement and not with the roll of the eyes or a condescending, okay, if I have to do this, I will kind of spirit. It should be one of the most joyous and exciting moments of your spiritual journey. Eagerness is a virtue. And I love the enthusiasm that comes when somebody says, I can't wait to be baptized. Uh, I don't know if you saw it it for the first time this week. It's been going around. You may have already seen it. Of this little boy who is being baptized into Christ. I love his eagerness. Watch this. This morning, uh, we have accepted Christ as his Savior and as his Lord and he will demonstrate his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by willingly being baptized this morning. He's been waiting on this day a long time. <laughs> and so, Jordan, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I love it. I'll do it. Shoom, right in the water. 
Now, he misses a little bit of the beauty of the ceremony in the part of it. But he just couldn't wait any longer to do it. Does that describe you this morning? You just can't wait any longer to do it. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you want to follow him and surrender your life, if you want to pledge your allegiance to him this morning, but you haven't been baptized, and I'm convinced that God wants you to do it, and there's no time like the present. My grandparents used to talk about breaking the ice in the farm ponds to baptize somebody in the winter. We don't do that here. We heat the water. So you don't have that as an excuse. And, of course, there are the proverbial stories of the preacher who puts the person under the water and then says, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit until the bubbles begin to rise. We don't wait for the bubbles to rise, all right? It's down and right back up. We make baptism, I think, a whole lot harder than it needs to be. We ask questions like, well, is it necessary for salvation? Or what if a person is stuck in the desert and there's no water? Or what moment is a person actually saved? Well, unless you understand the mind of God or the heart of the person who is being baptized, those questions are irrelevant. As a matter of fact, what if you're on the third floor of a burning building and someone calls 911 and the dispatcher notifies the station and then the fire trucks rush to the scene of the fire and the ladder goes up against the window and a fireman comes up the ladder and you step out of the burning building to safety? Who saved you? When were you actually saved? When the 911 call was made, when the dispatcher notified the fire station, when the truck arrived at the scene, when the ladder went up, when you stepped out of the window, because if any one of those things was missing, you'd have still been stuck in the building. Nobody gets hung up and says, it was at this split second when the salvation entered my... Who cares? We know that God is at work in us and bringing us to himself in the most incredible moment of our lives. You see, the best question to ask is the question, when... This was, this was basically the question of the Ethiopian with Philip in the chariot. When he was on his way back home, they came, Philip had been preaching to him about Jesus. They came to a body of water, and the Ethiopian said, here's water. When can I be baptized? Can I do it right now? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And they went down into the water, and he was baptized and went on his way rejoicing. I guarantee it will be one of the most memorable moments of your life. I can remember it as if it were yesterday, April the 2nd, 1967. There are not a lot of things that I remember clearly from when I was 12 years old, but this one I do. I remember the feel of the water. I remember my preacher's gentle voice, his hand on my back, the white handkerchief in his hand. I remember the scenes that were painted on the wall of the baptistry, and I remember going back into that water and coming out of that water. It is indelibly imprinted in my mind and heart. It is that climactic moment of my spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. It was the beginning of a wonderful relationship with him. I've had my ups and downs in my spiritual walk like you have, but I began a wonderful journey with him, and he has been faithful ever since. You see this ring I wear? I put that on June the 4th, 1977. It is my honor to wear this ring. This is my pledge of allegiance to my wife, Elsie. And through the years, I have not taken that ring off and set it on a shelf or something else. That ring stays on my finger. It's not nearly as shiny as it used to be. There's a couple dents in the ring, but those buffed areas, those dents represent some of the ups and downs that you go through in a married life. But I'm telling you, I said on that day, 
I take you as my wife. She said, I take you as my husband. It was our pledge of allegiance to one another, and it has been a marvelous journey. We are baptized once and declare our commitment to Christ. Refusing baptism is analogous to telling your spouse that you may love her, but you just don't want to wear the ring and let anybody know. What a cruel thing to do. Our baptism is a constant reminder that he is with us through the ups and downs of life and that while we may stumble and fall, his faithfulness never will.